People go to restaurants for lots of reasons. For fun, celebration, for family, for lifestyle. What the customer doesn't know is the thousands of details it takes to run a great restaurant. This is a high-risk, high-fail business. It's hard to find great staff. Costs are rising and profits are disappearing. It's a treacherous road and smart operators need a professional guide. I'm Roger. I've started many highly successful, high-profit restaurants that I've now sold for millions of dollars. I'm passionate about helping other owners and managers not just succeed, but knock it out of the park. I created a game-changing system, and it's filled with everything I've learned in over 20 years running super profitable, super fun restaurants. Everything from creating high-profit menu items and cost controls, to staff training where your teams serve and sell, to marketing hooks, money-maximizing tips, and efficiencies across your operation. What does this mean to you? More money to invest in your restaurant to hire a management team, time freedom, and peace of mind. You don't just want to run a restaurant, you want to dominate your competition and create a lasting legacy. Join the Academy and I'll show you how it's done. Welcome back to the podcast. Thanks for joining me. This week's guests are husband and wife restaurateurs that embody the word hospitality. But more importantly, they show us how to reach a balance in our life. You know, it's really hard when you're a restaurant owner, operator, or general manager to find a balance, not be tied to your business. And they talk all about how they stay in their lane. And actually, one of the founders of this restaurant group, um, Ty, is also a full-time career person at IBM on top of being a sommelier and being named to wine spectator lists in multiple restaurants of his. And Karen, boy, hospitality background going way back to the beginning. And the two will talk to us about staying in their lane. There's so much in this episode, so you're going to want to stay tuned. Now, on with the episode. You're tuned in to the Restaurant Rockstars Podcast. Powerful ideas to rock your restaurant. Here's your host, Roger Bodwin. Rockstars, the busiest time of the year is coming. Is your staff ready for the holiday rush? Well, this year, give your team the gift of Pop Menu AI Answering, a simple solution for phones ringing off the hook. AI Answering handles calls 24-7, 365 days a year, so your staff can focus on in-person guests. Customize your greetings and responses, answer common questions, promote specials and events, and send follow-up links to ordering and reservations. AI Answering handles it all while escalating more complex conversations back to your team. Now, never miss another tasty revenue opportunity. Pop Menu is the marketing technology platform designed to make growing your restaurant easy. Discover more AI restaurant tools that turn your to-do list into an already done list. Request a demo today and my listeners for a limited time will get $100 off their first month plus lock in one unchanging monthly rate. Go now to popmenu.com slash rockstars. Again, get $100 off your first month at popmenu.com slash rockstars. Welcome back, everyone. This is the Restaurant Rockstars Podcast. Welcome to the show, Ty and Karen. How are you today? Doing well. Yeah, doing great. Thanks for having us. Great to have you here. Again, a really dynamic restaurant group, really interesting story. We're going to get into all of that. But first, tell me about your hospitality backgrounds. 
Oh gosh, I can I can go first if you want. Um, so I I grew up in a an Italian household who we all love to eat. So in order to eat, you've got to know how to cook, right? So we um, I think I was given my first cookbook at the age of seven and just fell in love with being in the kitchen and always uh, loved to make people happy with food. That was just kind of ingrained in my DNA. So um, through the years, I you know trying to figure out what I want to do with my life. Went to school for hospitality and uh, went to Virginia Tech. Graduated. Uh, but then left the industry to kind of have a normal nine to five lifestyle. So did that for several, um, several, gosh, about 20 years and then decided, you know what? I think the one thing that, that brings me home is the passion of uh, making people through making people happy through food, wine and hospitality. So it was kind of a natural fit to, to come back home to this industry for sure. Oh, I can certainly relate to that. So when you were in school at Virginia Tech, were you on the culinary side? Were you on the sort of hospitality management side? Did you do a little bit of both? How'd that work out? Yeah, did a little bit of both, which is really great about their program. It lets you dip your toe in the water to figure out kind of where you want to steer your career within the hospitality industry. So, you know, I remember vividly uh, working in our fine dining restaurant on campus, and we all had to do a stint uh, for a semester and learning all of the stations, learning every piece of of the restaurant and being like, wow, this is a cool space to be. That's great. Terrific. Thanks for sharing. How about you, Ty? What's your story? Yeah, you know, I think uh, a lot like Karen, you know, hospitality has always been a big part of uh, my life. You know, the family, um, kid born in Queens, New York, uh, always grew up around very diverse and ethnic foods, you know, from Spanish to Italian to Chinese to Greek. Um, so it's always been a big, big part of my, uh, you know, my youth growing up and then, uh, you know, trying to get through college and, and learn how to, uh, you know, be an accountant, be a financial analyst, uh, worked in a number of restaurants and, you know, the bug just, just bit me a long time ago and it's, uh, just been with me ever since. Certainly a business of passion. Now, what's really interesting is you still have a day gig with IBM. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. I'm a partner in our, uh, global practice. So what really intrigues our listeners and myself is how you managed to balance starting a dynamic restaurant group and having, you know, a very intense, challenging job, I would guess, at IBM and continuing to hold together a marriage and working together with your wife, Karen, and work in the restaurant, which is obviously a stressful enterprise. And how, how do you keep it all together? How does that work for you? Yeah. I'm going to let you answer, but I'm going to make a joke real quick because Roger, Please his do. beard used to be completely dark before we started this. So uh, you can see, you can see how that's going. Well, I worked with my, well, I've worked with my wife and, you know, I continue to work with her in restaurant rock stars, but that's not why my hair is gray. I'm just <laughs> naturally aging, but thank you for sharing. So go ahead, Ty, tell us how, how you balance. Yeah. No, Karen brings a good point. My, uh, my older brother did say to me that, uh, of all all of us brothers, I have the uh, the grayest beard, and I I am the youngest, <laughs> so <laughs> there is something to that. I think what Karen's saying, um, you know, listen, it's we all have choices in life in terms of what, how we like to spend our time, what we like to do, and for me, you know, working, you know, my day gig, very intense, you know, very dedicated profession of um, you know IT sales and consulting, um, but the restaurant business to me is is sort of you know, my passion, right? It's a passion project. And so in terms of, you know, how do you balance? Uh, it's not easy, uh, but we do have just some amazing leaders within our organization. And we have some great, you know, investors and friends who also, you know, are very much part of the hospitality family. And so that makes it, you know, achievable. Um, but of course, you know, it does come with its challenges. I think, 
you know, if if we're being completely honest, you know, we've given up some personal, you know, time and and uh, and commitments to uh, you know to chase our dream, which uh, you know is worth every bit of it. Wow, you know, it's a similar story. I started restaurants thirty years ago, and I had a full time job. Um, at a major ski resort in marketing. I was a marketing director for a major ski resort, saw an opportunity in the town where the ski resort was located. Something struck me and it was Italian because I spent, um, I was able to live in Italy when I was in graduate school for a whole summer. And I was so influenced by wood-fired pizza on every corner. And I know you guys are starting a pizzeria, but suddenly I, I moved to this small town and there's an opportunity and I've got this full-time job and I'm thinking of starting a restaurant and somehow I was able to pull that together. And then obviously after uh, a year or two of working, you know, <laughs> six days a week at the resort and going to the restaurant every single night, I was finally able to make the jump and just did it full-time. And so I totally get it. You know, we have something in common here. So tell us about, um, your hospitality group and tell us the brainchild for it and the story and the timeline and take us back as far back as it goes. When you got the idea, what was the inspiration, what it was like to start it and where it is now compared to, you know, what your original vision was. That's a lot to unpack, but take us there. Yeah. 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 Well, I'll get us started here, but if you look over my, my shoulder, you'll see a picture of both Karen and I, this wasn't even so that's this that. way, but mm -hmm. but um, the picture of Karen and I uh, sitting on Dow Mountain, and so every year before we started to get into the, the venture of uh, running Benny Hospitality Group and opening, you know, San Vicentino Wine Bar, we used to go to um, wine country, you know, every year, uh, sometimes twice a year, to go enjoy some of the things that we we really enjoy, which is number one wine, but two, just traveling and being away and having time together. And so we were sitting on the side of Dow Mountain, enjoying a bottle of Soul of Wine and uh, one of our, you know, favorite wines. And uh, as we were sitting there, thinking about, you know, kind of, you know, our journey through life, how we come together, what we really enjoy. Um, we had just moved to Mount Pleasant, South Carolina. You know, a sort of a budding, growing kind of, a, you know, community uh, that was lacking maybe some more diversity and ethnic foods. Uh, which has come a long way now, right? I think uh, you know our our community is is not uh, starved for ethnic cuisine as much as it maybe was at the beginning. Um, but we just decided that you know this was an opportunity for us to do something we really enjoy and love. And it was never about the money. It was never about you know becoming you know, growing this big you know giant restaurant group or anything like that. It was really just about connecting to our DNA, which is hospitality and people. And they're on top of that wine, which is, you know, my passion. And uh, and we decided to uh, to really start getting serious about planning and potentially finding a spot. We spent about a year looking for a spot. Nothing really, you know, sort of uh, triggered our, you know, our um, our emotion or our selection process to say this is the one. And then, sure enough, you know, the space where savvy is today became available and uh we said hey this is this is it and uh we decided to jump in you know head first timing is everything isn't it always yeah. and it, it's funny um you know when i think about the savvy space we were initially looking for you know like 2,500 square feet but i feel like the universe always gives you uh what you can handle <laughs> so wow. um the universe delivered 5,000 square feet to us. So we were like, okay, here we go. Um, but it has proved to be uh, an amazing spot. You know, we um, opened just prior to COVID. So we opened November of 2019. 
hit our stride um, and we're, we're doing great. And then all of a sudden, you know, COVID hit. So um, we had to get very innovative, very, very fast and pushed us into um, areas that were potentially out of our comfort zone and forced us to make business decisions to keep the, the ship afloat. So, um, you know, we were very lucky about, you know, with our location, you know, Italian food translates very well to takeout delivery. Um, we also have a very large outdoor patio that gave us flexibility to serve guests in an outdoor setting. So, you know, through all of that, there were a ton of silver linings that um, that really helped us get through. Wow, so, isn't it amazing? Timing is everything. <laughs> yeah, it's timing and it's also fate sometimes too. You know, had you found that 2,025 square foot space, life would have been entirely different. So, wow, what challenges that must have been and, and how resilient this industry is for our listeners that obviously are still running restaurants and involved in this industry because it devastated um, everything that we knew prior. And interestingly, just like yourselves, I was out of the business for many years and then had the brilliant idea of buying another restaurant just before the pandemic. So I went through everything you went through and we yeah, I hate the word pivot now because it's been so overused, but that literally happened five or six times just to make the place survive and, and you know, just totally transition from this idea to this idea to this idea and adopt the new technologies and make everything work. And so I know our audience can relate to, to what you're saying. Tell us about um, what's the secret of your success? I mean, it's you mentioned the word hospitality, you mentioned the word leadership, and I'll dive into both of those. But what is really the the magic formula for Benny Hospitality and your current success right now? I think I've got a couple ideas, and you can you can follow up on this. I think a number one, you have to have passion. Um, number two, you can't just say, "Oh, hey, I love to cook," or "I love to be hospitable," and think that you know a business plan is going to fall into place around that. So you have to be um, very methodical and maniacal about what your business plan is and stick to that. Um, but also know that that you are going to have to pivot, right? Um, and, and overcome challenges along the way. Uh, I think uh, the other piece of it is surrounding yourself with a strong team, surrounding yourself with people that may not be great in the areas that that you are. Um, but I, I would come back to the, the biggest thing uh, to me is is passion. You have to have passion for this business or um, or else it, you're going to become very tired very fast. <laughs> That's an excellent answer. Ty, do you want to add anything to that? Yeah, gosh, <laughs> there's so many, so many uh, little things that really support what Karen said. But, you know, I, th I think it comes back to you have to have grit. You got to have passion and you can't be afraid to try something new. You, you got to continuously um, experiment, explore, and, and find ways to give people what they want. And in a business like ours, it's hard to always do that and be profitable, right? But it's getting, you know, it's getting inventive. It's getting creative. It's using technology. Um, but at the end of the day, it's finding what do people want and what are some creative ways that we can give them what they want? and still, you know, run a very profitable business. You know, that's a really interesting point you make about experiments because they happen all the time and you need a certain amount of risk tolerance depending on how risky the idea is. There could be a huge payoff in return on investment or it may seem like a great idea either in theory or on paper and then you try it and it could end up costing you quite a bit of money and setting you back. And and everyone is different in terms of the risk tolerance. But when you're in this business, you've got to be resourceful and creative. 
And do you guys find yourselves not very risk averse and you're more willing to take chances? And after you answer that, I'm going to ask you about anything that you experimented with that you thought was a great idea that maybe didn't work out for our audience's benefit. I'll let Ty answer the risk question. (laughs) You know, I think by nature, um, uh, I'm very much a risk taker and a very methodical, very well thought out, you know, very calculated risk taker. Uh, Because I always feel that if you're not taking risks, you know, maybe the most risky thing to do is to do the status quo, right? Because there's plenty of organizations, plenty of folks who can just keep doing what we've always done and, you know, and be successful at it. And if you really want to be successful in a different fashion, you have to, you have to take risk. And again, it's not risk of, Hey, let's go open this up in the middle of the desert. Like they did in Vegas. Right. That was sure. And look at what it turned out, but the original (laughs) people with that idea didn't work out so well for, but ultimately look what happened, but go ahead. Yeah. 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 But you know, it, but I think it's, uh, you know, it's just experimenting with small experiments and you experiment to learn. And even if you don't succeed, you know, the ability to take away, you know, some learnings from it and maybe incorporate it into a new idea that comes along in the future, you know, makes that initial experiment very much well worth it. Um, In terms of, you know, maybe where we've experimented and haven't been successful, um, nothing honestly jumps to mind, although I'm sure there's a million different things. Um, this jet lag from Sydney is probably not helping my brain. That's know. right. You just jetted in from a <laughs> very long level. trip. Oh, you're doing <laughs> remarkably well. I'd be sleeping right now. <laughs> Espresso. But but I will oh, I will go. say um, you know we now here's a, here's a case where we had a very successful experiment and maybe not as successful trying to replicate it. Mm-hmm. And okay. and that's Good. our our wine club, right? So. One of the things I've always, you know, we talked about every year we would go to a different place, mostly Napa, Paso Robles became two of our favorite places. Paso is actually probably our favorite place to go to um, in terms of wine country. And because it just has a very hospitable, very, you know, non-pretentious way about it. Um, So when we opened Savvy, one of the things I always wanted in a wine club was something that felt like, hey, I'm in control of what wine I get. There's too many times you join a wine club or you in a wine program and they tell you every month the two or four or six bottles that you're getting, which is cool. And I completely understand why they do. Um, but I always wanted to let folks try everything and then let them pick which two or four or six bottles they wanted. Now, you got to be incredibly accurate in you know your data and have a good understanding of, you know, are we going to be able to make this happen? And, you know, how many bottles are we going to need? So, you know, again, back for technology, using a lot of data and analytics to figure out, you know, what are the trends are, is really important. Um, so, you know, we were very successful with that at Savvy. We had uh, 500 members. We never planned on it getting really that big, right, for a restaurant. Um, but, you know, it was very successful. We opened our second venture, which is a Spanish gastro bar, and we brought that concept there. And what we found is that people, you know, aren't as interested in the wine club at at Samba as they are at Savvy. And and so now we've had to kind of pivot and think to ourselves, okay, maybe there's a better, another way, another experiment we can do to really make it, you know, much more in line with the Samba concept versus, you know, the Savvy concept. 
So that's a very, wow, there's so much to talk about here. So you're a sommelier, and obviously you're an ownophile before you got really in depth. I mean, you mentioned that, you know, that um, piece of art behind you. Did Are you self-taught? Did you go to school for this? Did you learn to be a sommelier or did you just, just really dive into wine and read wide spectator and try obviously lots of different wines? And then I know what I like it, but then you branched out. I mean, I don't want to speak for you. Tell us the whole story of yeah, how you yeah, got no, such in-depth wine knowledge. <laughs> it's a good question. Well, I'll tell you where the bug first hit me. So as we talked about earlier, you know, when I was a, a young lad going through college, working my way through college, um, you know, I worked at a, at a four or five star resort called Turnberry Isle. And we right. had, you know, mm-hmm. sommeliers there, um, you know, a lot of great wine, amazing seller. And the sommelier, I was working one night, Kenny Rogers came in, ordered a couple bottles of Merceau um, for him and his, his team. It was after a concert that they had down in South Florida. And, uh, and you know, as he always was, he was a very generous person. He ordered some extra bottles, knowing that they weren't going to use it and finish them or, or drink them and gave them to the staff. I mean, just an incredible human, um, as nice of a guy as I think I've ever met in, from a celebrity perspective. And at Turnberry, I met, you know, quite a, quite a I few. I can imagine. Yes, you would. Yeah. And I had a glass of Merceau that night. It wasn't a wine drink at the time. It was, you know, I just turned 22 years old. Um, just came back from the military. And uh, and it the bug just bit me. And at that point, I wanted to learn everything I could about wine because I I couldn't get the feeling or the memory or that, you know, sort of that experience out of my brain. And so I was constantly pestering and asking questions of the sommeliers and stuff. And uh, for the next 20 years, you know, in, in the business world, I spent a lot of my time looking at wine lists, entertaining, and just always wanting to learn um, about wine and what made that juice so spectacular, or, you know, in some cases, you know, very, very mediocre. And I wanted to understand what the drivers were behind that. Um, so I have a, you know, my personality is one of always wanting to learn, always looking at data, observing. And so wine became my my kind of playground to to feed that that uh that itch. <laughs> so when you're in that position and you have that extensive knowledge, you obviously need to know wines around the world, but you've mentioned numerous trips to either Napa or Paso Robles and that sort of thing. And Karen, you've got Italian roots. Have you ever been to Tuscany and you know toured the vintage, the different um, you know vintners there and that sort of thing yeah i'll tell you it's it's very funny because had you i have been to italy and um kind of did the the standard um tour of italy to hit all of the places that you're supposed to hit right but i want to go back and spend more time in the areas that i that i truly fell in love with and, and captured my heart which tuscany would certainly be one of them obviously um and if you would have said to me you know what six or seven years ago what kind of wine do you love to drink i would have told you you know a big bold cab from from you know, California or from Paso or, um, and my palate has expanded significantly to fall in love with so many Italian wines. And the, the cool thing about Italian wines is, um, for me, they're very value-based too. So you don't have to spend a ton of money to get a great bottle of wine. Yeah, and, you know, this is true. It, yeah. And, and I think so many people, including myself at one point were very intimidated um, buy Italian wines, a, you know, sometimes when you read the label, you're like, is that the grape? Is that, um, the vineyard? Is that the, what is this? What am I drinking? Um, but I think once you kind of get over that and feel more comfortable with Italian wines, my God, there is so much to explore. And, um, 
obviously everything, well, they pair really well with food because we're Italian. So, (laughs) (laughs) you know, I remember, I mean, so much about my wine experience in Italy wasn't about ordering bottles of wine. It was about getting the leader bottles of the house wine or whatever the local winery was down the road. And they were excellent wines. They were great values. And it was all part of the experience of, you know, sharing a leader with someone you were with or even, you know, strangers at a family style table, but that was all part of the culture and it was really incredible. And that's so much different here than in America where you would order a bottle of wine and the house wine is not necessarily a great, it's a value, but it's not necessarily a great glass or, you know, where it comes from, that sort of thing. So, you know, European cultural differences, obviously being what they are, but, and, and now you've got a Spanish concept as well. And you're saying that the wine club isn't quite what it was. It's savvy. Is that because it's heavily, you know, um, tilted towards Spanish wines, Tempranillos, that sort of thing? Or, or is there a fairly diverse list where you're just wondering why? I mean, we've got plenty of choices here, but people aren't picking up on it. What do you think's going on there? Yeah, I think it's more the vibe than anything, right? Mm-hmm. It's, um, you know, Savvy is much more elegant yet casual. Uh, we have full-time sommeliers. It, it just lends itself, I think, to more of that tasting and and sort of the you know, the journey of of tasting different wines, whereas Samba is a little bit more, like I said, gastro bar like. And so, mm. you know, it's one of those cases where I think it's more of an American thing, right? Because if you took Samba and put it in Barcelona, people would beat down the doors to come and try wine there, as well as have cocktails. And, you know, and obviously our, our culinary is off the charts there. Um, but, it you know, it doesn't feel like a place you'd want to maybe you know, drink some great wines all the time, right? So it's really more of a, you know, for those that have been to Europe, you know, we actually get a lot of comments of like, oh my God, you know, I've been to Barcelona. This is like, I'm back in Spain. Um, and and so it's, I think it's a little bit more of that than anything. It might be kind of like the area where we're at. It's a bit more, you know, everyday, um, very casual than it is, you know, big city, uh, which is the charm of what we love about this area. So it just may take a little time to kind of, you know, to get that off the ground. So we're not going to, we're certainly not going to stop um, doing our wine club because, you know, we, we do uh, another wine club a mile down the street, so it doesn't cost us anything. Right. But what we want to do is just make sure the experience is, is really within, um, you know, the lines of what we're trying to achieve to your question though, about Spain. And, you know, we do a lot of Spanish wines, Argentinian wines, Chilean wines, but domestics as well. And we'll do some Italians in there also. Um, but but I do think that, you know, it, it's more of the space than it is probably, you know, the wines per se. Well, I'm really glad you brought it up because um, I love to emphasize to the audience the importance or the power from a marketing standpoint that a club has. And obviously we've all been in sports bars or those bars that have mug clubs. And I had a mug club for many, many years that grew huge in my largest restaurant. And then suddenly the lady said, well, what about us? It's like, what about a wine club? You know? So that became a huge opportunity for, because sure, lots of ladies drink beer too, but the, you know, certain great customers asked for a wine club and then the wine club grew and we had really beautiful glassware and the pores were larger and there was certainly value added. But one of the things that we noticed was if customers used to come in maybe twice a month or three times a month, maybe now they were coming in several times a week because they felt this sort of, um, loyalty or affinity or exclusivity because they belong to this club. And then they had their friends recommend to join and 
the thing sold itself. So it's a huge opportunity. And I definitely think it's got legs for all of your concepts. And it's just a hook. You know, I love hooks. You can't have too many hooks in this business. So I'm really glad you brought up the wine club. Let's talk about um, the different concepts. Do you cross promote them from a marketing standpoint? Do you want your guests to you know, experience all your different concepts and then whether they develop a favorite or they kind of rotate through and, and that sort of thing. How do you, how do you do that? Is that part of your strategy? Yeah, no, absolutely. You know, to, um, you know, just talking about Savvy and Sama and their similarities and differences, you know, we basically, Savvy is our, you know, our season, you know, the menu changes seasonal and we have, you know, four wine spectator awards and, you know, we had, we've been recognized for, you know, probably one of the top uh, service uh, restaurants, you know, in, in the area, which, and Charleston is very much a hospitable, very high end restaurant, you know, foodie kind of town. So for us to kind of achieve those awards in this town says a lot about, you know, our team and staff and, and really what they believe, you know, hospitality is. Um, And then you have Samba, which again, more gastro bar, more fun, energetic, you know, it's okay to, to laugh really loud and have a great, great time. Um, and maybe we do some pour on shots, you know, <laughs> out of uh, out of the decanter where, you know, you just pour it straight in your mouth uh, or you could use the glass, whatever people prefer. And then you get, you know, our Woodhaven pizza concept, which is very near and dear to my heart. Um, I'm a pizza fanatic. As much as I love wine, I probably love pizza almost twice as much. Right? Now, it's New York style. Did you grow up in New York and why did you yeah. decide uh, New York style pizza? No, I'm from Queens, New York. Oh, there you go. Okay. Yeah. You know, you can always take the kid out of Queens, but you can't take the Queens out of the kid is, you know, sort of what I always say. Yeah. And, um, you know, I, I just, uh, you know, New York City style pizza is, is different, right? And so many folks, they talk about New York style pizza. And, you know, the challenge for me was always like, well, when you talk about New York style pizza, are you talking about Rochester? Are you talking about Buffalo? Are you talking about, you know, upstate New York where they may have a different take on what pizza is like? And there's no right or wrong answers. But when you think of New York City style, right, it is that it is that thin, crunchy, um, you know, savory and, you know, just an amazing sauce that, uh, you know, just brings a pie together where you almost don't even need toppings. But you throw toppings on it after that and it's, you know, it's even more amazing. So uh, yeah, kid from Queens, uh, from uh, originally born in Sunnyside, raised in Woodhaven, and uh, you know, pizza's always been near and dear to my heart, and we're trying to re-replicate that here in uh, in South Carolina uh, with our partners who are both from Jersey, and one of our partners, you know, spent forty years in the business uh, of pizza uh, with his family, and so yeah, we're trying to uh, bring that to uh, to this area and let people enjoy that. So the name really comes from the neighborhood then. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. Woodhaven does. So I'll, I'll tell you a little story if, if it's yeah. okay to tell no, a story please. about how, Absolutely. how Wood, Woodhaven started. Um, Woodhaven Pizza was probably born 50 years ago, but it was born 50 years ago in my mind, right? It is just now coming to physical form. And, you know, Woodhaven Pizza to me is the memory of my mom taking me now as you can may or may not tell from this podcast um i have a hard time staying on track right my my brain is going a million miles an hour you know which is why the restaurant business is perfect for me as well as the consulting and technology business because it's always changing and i i love just you know observing and and changing my my uh pace and and gears um but my mom used to take me if i was good for that week in second or third grade 
she'd take me down to the corner store. We'd take one of my Hanes white t-shirts, right? Or Fruit of the Loom or whatever. It was probably Fruit of the Loom, actually. And for for uh, a dollar, you can get, you know, an iron-on, you know, sort of, you know, logo, which I get Boston, Zeppelin, ACDC, right? They just iron on for a buck. So and a classic that, rock we- fan too, Ty? Oh, yeah. Oh, Me yeah, too. for sure. Thank yeah, you. Absolutely. Some of my favorite bands you just mentioned. So yeah, yeah, Thank absolutely. You. Um, and so after that, we'd walk across the street uh, to uh, a pizzeria. Uh, it was underneath um, the train, you know, over the overhead train uh, mm-hmm. tracks. Oh, sure. And and so you know, trains, and you know, obviously we take the trains into the city, you know, from Queens, New York. But on Woodhaven Boulevard, we'd walk across, get a slice, and that's my very first memory of pizza right i'm sure i've had it you know long before that but there was something about that one day where we took that white t-shirt i was good that week i wasn't disruptive in class you know they ironed on my patch it was a boston t-shirt i still remember to this day walked across got a square grandma pie and you know i was hooked on the, the pizza bug ever since mentally gotcha you know mine was new haven style pizza because my aunt um, my mother's sister lived in New Haven, and we went there all the time to visit when I was a kid growing up. And pizza was huge in New Haven, so I remember that being kind of an early influence as a kid. But um, I saw it, I also had relatives in the Bronx, and I remember staying there and having the overhead trains passing right over. So it's like I'm reliving your childhood and mine just through your conversation. Yeah. But yeah, it's all pizza is a wonderful thing, and obviously it's it's got so many different variations. And, and all that. And I obviously, um, you know, built my businesses on wood-fired pizzerias. And I was all influenced by, like I said, trips to Italy and, and living there. But it's such an amazing food. But it's such a competitive market segment also. Do you find that there's lots of pizza competition in, in your area or not so much? Oh, no, absolutely. And I, But I think if you start talking about New York City-style pizza, there's probably not as much competition. I'm, I'm yeah. sure that's true. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and, and as you know, if you've been, you know, New Haven, you know, talk about competition, right? Some probably three of the greatest pizzerias in the world are within a block of each other. Right. So talk about competition. Right. But I think our competition isn't other pizza places um, necessarily. I think it's, you know, getting folks away from maybe some of the chains. Right. The folks that don't treat pizza like a craft because. Good listen, point. You know, pizza is a very simple product, but it's not easy. And that's what gets lost, right? The time you have to take to really, you know, nurture the dough, right? And and use the right flour and let it sit for two days. And the quality of the water as well. (laughs) It's very debatable. Okay, tell us about that. Water, we had excellent water quality, and we made our own dough fresh every day from scratch. So I totally get what you're talking about. It's a time-honored process. You got to put the craft into it. It's not just about you know slapping something together and calling it pizza. You're absolutely right about that. But keep yeah, going. I don't it, mean to interrupt it, you. No, it's okay. It's funny you mentioned a water thing. I mean, of course, right? I mean, 60 to 65, in some cases, 70% of the product is water. So the water has to be good. But there was this old what I would call a myth of, hey, you can't make great New York City style pizza out of, outside of New York City because of the water. And it's just not true, right? But you do have to understand that your water 
needs to be clean. It needs to be flavorful from a mineral perspective. And, and so it has to be that very crisp water. And in New York, it's great because you could open up a tap and get that, right? Whereas maybe in South Carolina or Florida or other places, you can't just do that, right? You, so, so we actually filter all of our water to make sure we get a quality of water, you know, that is similar to what you would expect to get, you know, from the, the, the New York uh, city, you know, water authority. Um, but, uh, and I lost my, my train of thought, but, but <laughs> I do have, I do have something to add there too. Okay. Um, Go ahead, a, Karen. This was actually, um, I think born while you, while you've been traveling the last couple of months. So we've got one of our, um, chefs at Savvy and we do Neapolitan style pies at Savvy. And I love to watch him teach, um, some of our new cooks that come in how to properly make a pizza. And with every move of his hands, he says, respect the crust, respect the crust. And it gets this mantra into your head. So I always love to watch him train other folks um, because he's teaching them about the art of making a pizza, right? It's not just throwing it all together. Like Ty said, it is respecting the product in, in the final final piece. So, Oh, I did remember where I was going with that. Whole, okay. Okay. Keep on rolling. It was, you know, when they were talking about the water, um, I think they didn't pay the respect to the people who actually cared about the craft, right? They made it about, oh, you can't do it because of the water. No, it's because you had generations of pizza makers who understood how to respect the craft, right? How to feed your dough, how to create the right environment and understand the variables that happen, right? It gets hot, it gets cold, it gets humid, humid mm -hmm. it gets dry, right? And and sometimes, right, humans who are we're touching these the dough, right? Some days we have good days and some days we have bad days, right? And what made those pizzaiolos so great is that they knew how to separate their personal life from the craft, and the craft almost became more important than anything. And so, you know, they were just very in tune with the environment around them. And they actually put a lot of, you know, care and time into those pizzas. And that's what made them great. The water is important, but it wasn't the water. It was the person behind it. I totally agree with you. And it's, you know, we mentioned it being such a time-honored tradition, but, you know, in Italy specifically, it's such a passed down from generational thing and it's and it's a revered position to be a pizzaiolo. And I'm mm -hmm. sure you've been to some of these um restaurant shows here, especially the pizza. I'll be speaking at the uh pizza in international show in Orlando next month, and they have major competitions right on the stage, you know, the dough yeah. throwing and the you know, the pizza making, and I'll be eating a lot of pizza at that show, but you know what I'm saying, but it's 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 a tradition, but it's also you know very much a prestige thing over there in Italy. If you're a yep. a generational member of a family that it's been passed down and the recipes and all that, and that's the craft. That's part of the craft. That's part of the passion we've been talking about. And it shouldn't just be about pizza. It's about every dish that any restaurant makes. It should be about the craft, the quality, the pride, and the passion behind it, and making sure that every dish you know, is as perfect as it can be. And you want your guests to absolutely love everything that you make. So Amen. Yeah. that's yeah. what a business is about. Doesn't matter what the concept of the cuisine, but you know, I'm glad we we're talking about this. Let's shift gears a little bit. Let's talk about your individual roles at Benny and you know, how you guys stay in your lane <laughs> or if you don't sometimes <laughs> don't. and kind of overlap <laughs> a little bit. Tell us about that. What, what are you each responsible for on a daily basis? You want me to try that one? Yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> so I always say Ty is um, the Benning Hospitality Group visionary. And I always mm-hmm. do this. He is an idea guy. And as you can tell, um, his mind is always going a million miles an hour. And I remember um, one night coming home from the restaurant, he had he had left just slightly before me. And I remember walking into the house and, and he was decompressing after a long day, but yet he was watching something, something on YouTube about how to build a, a database. Uh, I don't even remember, but it was like, I'm like, man, you, you've got to just relax. Like, but he's constantly learning, right? Constantly has. My wife ideas. is like that. My wife is constantly, if she's not, I say this to my friends, if she's not rearranging the furniture three times a week and listening to a hundred different podcasts and reading books on Audible, it's like, I'm a constant sponge for knowledge is what she would say. And it sounds like ties that way. Absolutely. And it's all about balance, right? So not yeah, that I okay. want to learn, but um, for me, I tend to compartmentalize things a little bit more. So Ty yeah. is definitely that guy. I am. Um, Gosh, I, I, hospitality is just, it's, it comes very naturally to me. So for me, um, what I love to do is be with our staff, be with our guests and, um, just make sure that the, the one phrase I always use is if a guest has walked out our front door and they haven't felt something, we have not done our job. It is up to us to make them feel like, um, they can actually take the night off. They can sit back and relax and let us care for them for that night. Um, it, we, we need to make them feel seen and heard and remembered. And, um, we have a, over our bar in, at Savvy is a, a, t- a phrase in Italian that means, um, enter as friends and leave as family. And we truly do believe that that is really our, our bottom line mission in this, in this organization or in this hospitality group. And, and back to the question that you had asked about, you know, do we cross market and, and do things overlap within the industry or within our, um, hospitality group, hospitality is the one thing that is the golden thread, right? So whether you come to Savvy, whether you come to Samba or Woodhaven Pizza, um, you know that uh, the warmth and the care that we put into uh, the food and the experience is going to be the same at every every concept. You know, it's certainly, there's different levels of you know, Savvy being a little bit more upscale and Samba feeling more like a gastro bar and Woodhaven's going to be, you know, super casual with a big TV wall and a place you can come and watch the game with your family. Uh, but you know um, how you're going to feel when you leave that restaurant that night. And so that's kind of the what I call the golden thread. That's excellent. Awesome. That's terrific. Thank you for sharing that. Let's talk about, is there a typical day for either one of you? Is every day completely different? I think Every day is is pretty darn different. Um, I think, uh, yeah, yeah. Every day is different, but I but if you stretch it out over a long enough period, there's what I would call daily archetypes, right? Mm-hmm. Certain days are gonna feel the same um, as others. They just may be stretched out, right? And so you'll have some days where we have to be, you know, immensely structured and really think about every step we take that day because it is jam-packed. We've got a lot of deliverables that need to come come around. It may be the end of the period or the end of the quarter or tax season is upon us or whatever, or a new menu rollout. And then there's days where, you know, it's lighter, you know, because we have just gone through a period of, of a lot of change or a lot of process implementation. And so, you know, I would say every day is definitely different, but there's certainly archetypes that we have to start to recognize 
um, and recognize that when those different archetypes co come into play, that it's not forever. It's just for that day or that week, you know, and that when the the archetype of a more casual day comes along, that we take a step back, let the team do their thing, and we take a, a step away and, and sort of reboot and recharge. It's it's critically important. But yeah, every day is different. I mean, you're you're in the business, you understand that. And and to use a Mike Tyson phrase, everyone's got a plan to get punched in the mouth. And some days you wake up and you think it's going to be an archetype day of a casual day and you get punched in the mouth and you just have to pivot. You have to have a lot of grit and, you know, just keep pressing forward. Yeah, some days you're the bug and some days you're the windshield. <laughs> That's, right. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Let's talk about leadership. I love that word. And I'm on a personal mission to sort of shift the mindset of this industry between the word leader and the word manager. And I know that you know what that means, but let's talk about your leadership philosophies in your business and what the onboarding and training is all about, what your hospitality philosophies are that you impart upon your staff and how you develop a team culture or what your company culture really is. Let's talk about how all those things sort of blend together. Yeah, I'll take that one yeah, first. Right. I'd love, love for you to, to yeah, sort of please. kick in. But, um, and this is where you see Karen and I sort of working together as I'm more of the, here's the structure, here's what it looks like. And as creative as I am and as, you know, everywhere um, in a conversation I can be, I do have a very methodical structure to things like leadership. And for me, um, you know, when I think of leadership uh, or I think of culture, um, those two things are very much you know intertwined because everybody in the restaurant needs to be a leader in some form or fashion. Some people are leading in the terms of people, some people are leading in terms of product, and some people are leading in terms of what I call place, right? So we all have a leadership, you know, slant to us. In some cases, it's just leading through the job that you're you're doing, but interacting with other other folks. In other cases, it's getting your team ready to go, you know, run a marathon. You know, uh, you know, just kind of you know thinking uh, that way. But for me, it's you know, uh, a good leader has to communicate. You got to collaborate. You got to contribute, right? So if you think about those, just those three things, communication, we all get right. It's, it's important. Um, and, you know, in the restaurant business, things are moving a million miles an hour. Communication is is always something everybody struggles with. Right. How do you keep everybody, you know, in the know? Right. Um, collaboration. Right. Working well with other departments. Right. Working well with other leaders, working well, even with other restaurants and, and other businesses. Right. Is, is really important. But in our culture, uh, we talk about from a leadership perspective, just collaborating. So you got to communicate, you got to collaborate, and then you got to contribute, right? At the end of the day, if you're not contributing, your team is gonna is not gonna look at you and say, "I need to follow him, her, they, you know, whomever." Um, so con contribution is really, really important. And when you do those three things, and um, I always say that you know you also have to be present is another piece of that, right? So if you're collaborating, communicating, contributing, and you're present with your team, your culture will automatically begin to take shape. And so, you know, I always call it the four C's, right? The three C's equals the fourth one. And, and that's how you get your, uh, you know, your culture. I love it. Give me that again. It was collaboration. Give me the C's. Yeah. I want to so remember that. Communication. Yep. That's right. Collab. Yep. Collaboration. Of course um contribution 
And if you do those, those three things right, your culture will take care of itself. Love that. That's fantastic. That was that was a great piece to add to this. Thank you very much. What do you have to add to that, Karen? Yeah, well, I certainly can't can't compare to. I got to come up with some sort of acronyms. Um, uh, for me, it's you know this industry is about people, right? So I think treating people like people, um, holding them accountable, but also um, treating them like humans. And um, you know, I think for for years and years in this industry. Um, it, I hate to say it, but in the food and beverage industry, a lot of the a lot of the folks working in this in- industry are were treated like second class citizens, or they weren't as, you mm-hmm. know, weren't given health benefits, or they weren't given yep. PTO, and um, and that's not the case. We've got several, uh, you know, these folks are talented individuals, and um, you know we're lucky to surround ourselves with them. So I think um, treating them like humans, uh, treating them how you would like to be treated and um guiding them and coaching them uh, but then also at the same time you you can't be afraid to make difficult decisions and um one thing that that Ty mentioned to me that will always stick with me when when we first set out on this path was i was struggling with making a, a decision to let somebody go and i was like oh my god i don't want to do this because um it, it was just very difficult for me to do in my skin but he said um if you think about all of the families that we are responsible for as owners of this company we have 40 whatever it was at the time 45 families um depending on the success of this restaurant and we can't let one person bring that down and so that has always stuck with me and has made um what typically could be a very difficult decision very easy um so you you have to be able to to get past that and not be afraid to make those difficult decisions. Yeah. And, and just on that point, just to kind of close that out is that, you know, there are times to Karen's point, it's a hard decision to make, but there's a bigger, you know, philosophy around why you have to make that decision. And But it doesn't mean that we don't care and love that person. It just means that maybe Benny Hospitality Group isn't the right place. For of them, course. Right? Yep. The fit is so important, vitally important, because it's a chemistry amongst the team. And the end result is the guest notices this is either a well-oiled machine and the team fit well together and the hospitality is present or it's not. And one person, like you said, Karen, can bring the whole thing down. So I guess the key point here is accountability must be present in order for leadership to really work. Um, Mm -hmm. Is there anything special you do to ensure accountability? Is it really required in your organization? Do people have um, very clear ideas of what the expectations are and they all meet those things? Do you have job descriptions of performance reviews and recognition rewards? How do you do it? Mm -hmm. Hey, listen, it's a really great question. And and so in, in my daytime business, you know, obviously I spend a lot of time either managing teams or talking to, you know, C-suite individuals on, you know, how did, how do they, you know, change your business? The one thing that I've learned, um, you know, when I was, I spent a couple of decades at Accenture. And the one thing that I learned uh, during that time is that sometimes the, the process being too rigid can actually reduce your ability to create value. And, and what I mean by that is that sometimes you need a guided path, right? A lighted path versus fences, you know, electrocuted on both sides and you have to stay on that path. Sometimes you need to veer off the path a little bit. So we've always been, it, it's a very delicate balance because what I'll say is that in our industry, everybody wants to know oh, what's my exact job and what I exactly have to do. But we're dealing with humans, right? Every day. And every day that human that comes through the door to, you know, 
to come into one of our restaurants. Um, they may be a different human than they were when they came last week. Mm-hmm. Right. Oh, yeah. And so having the same strict responsibilities and process can actually cause that same human and two different sort of mindsets or states of emotional being to have two completely different experiences if we do everything exactly the same way every single time. And that's hard in the restaurant business. And I and I get that. So we try to balance between having what I would call core principles of how we operate and that, you know, versus having, hey, step one, step two, step three, step four. And it's been very challenging for us. I'll, I'll be completely honest, right? It's been very challenging, but it has been something where I've tried to stay as steadfast as I can. And, and Karen has as well in terms of we're not going to prescribe to everybody how you and what you say when you interact with a guest, but here are your core principles. And at the end of the day, the most core principle is to make that guest feel heard, seen, and make sure they understand that we're here to the product that we serve is hospitality, the food, the beverage, the drinks, the, the decor, that's all sort of the framework around it. But at the end of the day, the core picture we're trying to paint is is one size fits one hospitality. I love it. That's beautiful. Let's shift gears yet again and let's talk about inflation and rising costs and volatility of you know food prices and the markets and supply chain issues. And a lot of that is gone, but a lot of it's still there. What are those challenges that you're currently facing and how do you maintain margins and who's in charge of your finances at Benny? <laughs> well, you're yeah, the finance guy. Yeah. Okay. By, by by trade, I'm a, I'm a I'm a finance guy, but I'm also yeah. you know my day job. I'm more of a what they call a deal maker, and and so I'm thinking about how do we create a deal, but also make sure it's profitable, right? So in in our business, you know, obviously I'm doing the same thing, right? How do we create an offering, but also make sure it's profitable? Um, inflation, I think last year was much much more of a problem. I would say inflation right now is non-existent, right? From a product perspective. I think there's still pockets of it, but I think we're now back into a normal cycle of if you are very thoughtful in your procurement and you're you're really looking at what products you're bringing in and what items and you're negotiating, you know, with your suppliers, um, you know, I think inflation has has tamed. In some cases, just recently I did a whole overhaul of um our buy the glass program, right? And these are all great you know, great wines. Um, but what we're seeing is that they're seeing softness on their side, right? So we said, hey, listen, if we consolidate our purchasing, you know, through you, you know, can we get, you know, a better deal? And in 99 cases out of 100, and literally we have probably between two or three concepts, 100 different SKUs, you know, we're seeing a lot of flexibility. And what we're trying to do is create relationships with our suppliers where it's a win-win for both sides, right? And and we take that very seriously. But inflation from a product perspective, I, it, it's completely tamed. In fact, I, I'm seeing more disinflation than inflation at this point. From a you know, I think yeah, you're you're making a really really valid point here, and I'm glad you're bringing that out because there's obviously savvy operators out there that are really bottom line oriented, and they've got economies of scale, and they shop around different products of comparable quality, and they're really analyzing the invoices and the numbers. And like you said, smart 
procurement and all those things. And then there are those operators just sort of flying by the seat of their pants, wondering why their margins are less than 5%, you know, and that's the, and there's a big spread in this industry, but I love that point you're making because somebody, if it's not you as the owner needs to be very bottom line oriented and make very smart choices and know what the critical numbers are and know that taking inventory is important and your prime costs, keeping them in your sweet spot and in line. And there's so many operators that are missing those key points mm -hmm. and, and costing out your menus regularly to know what you're making, what your margins are on every dish and what, you know, where's the profit lie in your business. So thank you for sharing that. That was, that was really, really important. Let's wrap this up and talk about what's the future of Benny look like. You're going to keep opening up new restaurant concepts and, you know, keep going in, in hospitality with, with multiple concepts and cuisines and all that. What's, what's your end goal? Yeah. I think if you were to ask Karen a question, she, she'd be very content kind of where we're at right now. Um, I think, but our, our group, right. We have a number of passionate um, investors who are also operators with us, right. Mm -hmm. You know, we may at this point own a fair amount of the equity within the Benny hospitality group, but we're always looking for, for partners and the partners that we're bringing on are partners who um, want to expand, want to grow. And so we're looking to maybe take a slight step back by bringing, bringing in more talent and more talent at the ownership level so that we can have more work-life balance. Because over the last three years, we haven't had a lot of work-life balance. I can imagine. I know yeah. that feeling. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, but the plan is to continue to grow. I mean, we're looking at opening a number of Woodhaven pizzas across the Southeast. Um, and then as we start to open uh, those Woodhaven pizzas, when we see an opportunity for a Samba or a Savvy, we'll slot those in as well, because we do think there's there's some scale opportunities and some, mm. some cross-marketing that is important. And so, uh, you know, we're, we're going to take it sort of day by day and, um, you know, just keep assessing the environment and, and again, giving the people what they want. And if we can give the people what they want with one of our three concepts, we'll continue to uh, to do that. Well, you both are inspired restaurateurs, leaders, and you know what you're doing for the industry is wonderful. And I think you've offered lots of key nuggets of information to our audience that uh, they can obviously put into practice themselves. So thanks very much for being with us. Thanks, Thank Roger. You. Appreciate it. That was the Restaurant Rockstars podcast. Everyone can't, can't wait to see it in the next episode. So please stay tuned and stay well. Thanks, Diane Karen. I so enjoyed having you as guests. You certainly know what the foundations of hospitality are all about. You've built a strong company culture. You not only are strong financially, you're strong with leadership, but most importantly, you teach us that there is a possible balance in your life. When you run a restaurant, you don't have to be tied to it. You can literally just use your expertise and put others in charge and just truly lead a business forward and still have a balance in your life. But it's evident that you're passionate about the business and we really appreciate your sharing your experiences with us. So thank you so much. Can't wait to see you next time. Listen, from one restaurateur to another, and I hope you GMs out there listening as well are paying attention. You know, marketing should never be an experiment. Oh, I tried this or I tried that. No, any of your valuable dollars that you spend on marketing should absolutely be trackable. You should know exactly where the business is coming from and that it's driving return on your investment. You spend a certain amount of money, you want to make far more money in return from that marketing if you can track it. So pay attention. 
My friend Dyson runs a business called The Birthday Club, and his program is done for you because we know that everybody dines out on their birthday. It's a tradition. It's a celebration. But not only do they not come in by themselves, they bring many friends with them. They usually have free spending and large check averages. It's very profitable business. So why leave it to chance? Why let your competitors get all the birthday business? So again, The Birthday Club is a done-for-you program. All you have to do is check out www.jointhebirthdayclub.com slash birthday rockstar. It's a great program. If I still owned and operated restaurants today after decades, it's something I would definitely be doing, but it's worth checking out. So check it out. Jointhebirthdayclub.com slash birthday rockstar. Thanks for listening to the Restaurant Rockstars podcast. For lots of great resources, head over to restaurantrockstars.com. See you next time.